Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Want a website with unmatched power, speed and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello, and welcome to Between the Lines, the podcast that unfolds faded pages, deciphers the handwriting, and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written this same week, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Yes, by April this year, the Second World War had become a way of life, a cacophony of military strategies, and a confusion of political intent. To understand what happened, why it happened, and how each part of this conflict was fought, it makes sense to look at the official records, the war diaries, divisional histories, autobiographies and the like. For the most part, these hold all the facts we need. They certainly have the all-important figures that define military logistics. However, those are the mechanics of war, writ large with words finessed on purpose to describe clinical events. Intentionally, they remove feelings and emotion. The reality of war, as we're about to find out, is described as well, if not better, by men and women who noted what was happening around them and how they felt at the time. Fortunately, many people did put pen to paper in their own diaries, in personal memoirs and journals, and in letters to their loved ones. It's their words we're reading now, more or less in the week in which they were written. Every theatre, every fighting force, on both sides of the line, and we'll be hearing from the home front too. These were both ordinary and extraordinary people. Their handwriting may be hard to read, and war sometimes gets in the way of regular correspondence, so we might not hear from everyone every week. But the human spirit and the courage of a cast of thousands has been captured for posterity between the lines. It's the first week of April 1943. On the home front, life is hard, and overseas, the newspapers tell us there's no let-up at all in the Battle of the Atlantic. The Allies, however, are gaining momentum on dry land, and the tables are about to turn in North Africa. There's a hive of activity in the Pacific, and agreement at the Casablanca Conference has seen the air war increase greatly in severity in Europe. In short, Bomber Command is now a force to be reckoned with, The introduction of Oboe, the blind bombing system, is making all the difference. The Allies can target Germany's industrial capability more accurately. The US Army Air Force is also steadily increasing the number and intensity of its daylight raids. But then again, so too is the Luftwaffe. At 22 years old, Leutnant, 2nd Lieutenant, Heinz Nocker, has been in service for four years. 
He's at home in the air, a talented pilot, and at this point is still firmly committed to the Luftwaffe's cause. Eventually, he'll be credited with 33 enemy victories. His experience is an insight to the trials and tribulations of flying a Messerschmitt 109. And in his diary, he records several memorable events. So much so, we're starting this series with an exception to the rule. These entries are from I Flew for the Führer, Knocker's Diary, in the two weeks before April 1943. Oh, I remember it like yesterday. End of March, beginning of April... About half past two in the afternoon, damn, the Americans were coming in from the sea. I refueled immediately and shouted at the man to give me a 500-pound bomb. <laughs> Why is this taking so long? Come on, come on, hurry! The Yanks have already crossed the coast of Holland. Finally, my plane struggles to the end of the runway. Suddenly, as I turn, it lists heavily to the port and a tire has burst. I fire a flare at my men and I stand immediately. They come racing towards me. They lift up the airplane on their backs, my God, and we change that wheel in a matter of seconds. All clear. I open the throttle, pull her off the ground. The sky is full of vapor trails. Everyone is already engaged in combat. It feels as though I'm late to a party. Down that tire. Climbing over Heligoland has taken me like 25 minutes to get to 30,000 feet. And I edge forward slowly until I'm over the enemy. Fortresses. Lots of fortresses. Huge bombers. For several minutes they fire at me. I weave and dip each wing of my airplane so that I can see what they're doing. Holes appear in my wing and, okay, it's time. I fuse the bomb, take final aim and then press that release button on my stick. My bomb goes hurtling down. I watch it fall and then it explodes. It explodes in the middle of the fortresses. One wing breaks off. Two other bombers plunge away. My bomber crashes into the sea. There's no sign of fire. Just a torn wing fluttering down like an autumn leaf. And the bomb is a hit. Not just one of the fortresses, but also with our command. Um, as soon as I land, I must report to the commanding officer. Knocker, incredible. You must do that again. Do you think you can? I'm not certain. Perhaps. Later that evening, I get a phone call. It's the middle of the night, and yes, I'm in bed with no pajamas on, but still, I come to attention. This is Lieutenant Knocker, number five, flight commander, number one, fighter wing. I cannot believe it. Reichsmarschall Göring comes on the telephone. I'm delighted, Knocker. I want to personally express my particular appreciation. Imagine that. The next day, General Kamhuber shouts at me. Horrible little man. What the hell do you think you were doing? Every time something goes wrong, we get the same question. Well, what does he want me to say? Well, I like the funny noise when the bomb goes off? <laughs> Perhaps not. Well, Knocker, what do you want to say for yourself? Nothing, sir. Except that last night the Reichsmarschall personally thanked me. He said he appreciated a pilot acting in his own initiative. There. That takes care of him. <laughs> Colonel Litzov arrives. He asks if we can do it again. He wants to send one of the flights in number 26 fighter wing to try this as a regular plan. Colonel, I do not know if we will have the same outcomes more than once or twice. In fact, I must say I wish I had never dropped that bomb at all. Litzov leans forward. 
MeToo-knap, ja. MeToo. Many of Heinz Knocker's aerial exploits took him over the English Channel, that great littoral dividing line. Elsewhere at sea, a small fleet of vessels is providing cover for Operation Pamphlet, the convoy ordered to carry the Australian Knife Division safely from the southern end of the Suez Canal in Egypt out to Sydney, Australia. His Majesty's ships, the Resolution, Revenge, Rotherham, Nepal, Norman, Nizam, Quilliam, Foxhound and Warspite have all started the long trip south, sailing via Adu Atoll, Kilindini and Durban. At the helm of HMS Warspite is Captain Herbert Ansley Packer, Bertie to his friends, a naval man and proper fighting sea dog, whose appointment to HMS Warspite now brings his career full circle. Bertie had first joined the battleship on February the 22nd, 1915, not long after she was first commissioned, as an acting sub-lieutenant in her gunroom. He became her gunnery officer in 1926, and his log shows that he first made the rank of captain in 1935. But after 18 months, on the HMS Excellent, he rejoined HMS Warspite again when she laid over in Kenya. That particular journey was not without its challenges. There was no such thing as a straightforward passage to catch up with a ship once it was already on a voyage. But his logbook notes one small recompense for a six-week journey. His baggage may have arrived well behind him, but it was at least replete with 40 cases of whiskey and 40 cases of gin. We join Bertie Packer now, as he joins his ship in Kilindini. April the 1st, 1943. After a fine time at the Cape, we arrived at Durban at 4pm. Ralph Edwards was there, and then I was met by Dick Edwards, the signal officer, and David Edwards, the commander, which is all very confusing. Rang up Molly, who cordially invited me to stay, and this I jumped at, stayed for a fortnight. Had a busy time, but went off to the ship and found her in dry dock. I must say, it's given quite a kick to find myself in command of this fine ship, even though I'd been a sub-lieutenant in 1915 when she was completing building. I spent three years of the last war in her, including the Battle of Jutland. As OOT, I'd kept a turret in action right up to the end of the battle. The other three were out of action, and got a mention and a promotion to lieutenant because of it. The officers and the ship's company are on leave, staying with people all over the district. Everyone is terribly hospitable and kind, and the sailors are making many friends. They are fine ambassadors in a country where there is much racial and political strife, and whose farmers have often hardly seen a sailor. On this day, I very suitably assumed command, and also met Abel Seaman Pluto. Abel Seaman, Abel Dog, Pluto is just a dog, a brown dog, strong, sturdy, unshakable, in fact, with a terrific Winstonian personality. He was born during the siege of Tobruk in 1941 and given to HMS Hotspur. In that ship, he was in very many engagements and enterprises in the Mediterranean. When Hotspur left the Med, she joined Eastern Fleet, and on leaving Eastern Fleet for UK, Hotspur, realising that Pluto was a hot-weather dog, turned him over to Warspite. At Mombasa, he didn't go ashore with the Liberty Men, but swam ashore. And when he'd eased his feelings about the place and had enough, he swam back and barked at the gangway until the quartermaster hoisted him out of the water. More later, when I know him better. At present, he is not interested in me. I bore him, and he fixes me with a baleful eye. 
Much rather like an old admiral. Howard Kelly, for instance. Bertie is referring to Admiral Sir William Archibald Howard Kelly, GBE, KCB, CMG, MVO, a Royal Naval officer who later became Commander-in-Chief China Station. Not, of course, to be confused with the SS Howard A. Kelly, an American Liberty ship built for service that same year. As HMS Warspite's captain, Bertie was allowed to bring his wife out on active service. Joy Packer's travels were aligned to his commands, and she wrote about them at length, both as a general author and in three volumes of personal memoirs. Diary writing was taught from an early age back then. It was far more of a habit than it is today. Another diarist of the time was Vera Hodgson, a woman named for her uncle, the marine biologist Thomas Vera Hodgson, who'd served on Scott's Antarctic missions. Vera's diary spans the entire length of the war. As a young woman, she'd read history at Birmingham University. In fact, she was well-read in general, and she taught first at the Poggio Imperiale, once the Summer Palace of the Grand Dukes of Tuscany, and later at a school in Folkestone. And, when she wasn't teaching, she was helping out at a local charity in Notting Hill Gate and making copious notes about wartime life being lived in London. Her book, Few Eggs and No Oranges, is, as she describes it, a diary showing how unimportant people in London and Birmingham lived through the war years, 1940-45, to 45, written in Notting Hill. We'll put a list of books up later, so you can dig into the before and after of these entries. Veer's diary is published by Persephone Books. Here, she starts us off in the first week of April 1943, with a joyful note on how to celebrate a birthday in the middle of a war. Sunday the 4th of April. Full of birthday celebrations, two tin boxes full of woodland flowers, primroses and violets in moss from Kath, arranged some in my new glass bowl and took the rest to the office. All gathered in Chipping Camden. A cake from Bernard Slay himself. Auntie Nell made me one with marzipan icing and soya bean flour. This for the office party. Every member of staff throws a tea party on a birthday. The arts from Breed also sent me primroses, and my tiny flat took on the appearance of a boa. Very touched I was by all these remembrances. My Swiss colleague came to tea on Saturday. He wishes that such flats were obtainable for men. Gave him Rhodesian apricots, and used the muffin dish bought from the rummage sale for toast. You pour hot water in the under-container. It is a priceless possession. Went to Wimbledon to hear about Margaret and Girton. There were a hundred candidates and only twelve vacancies. Studied the exam papers with her and was relieved I had not to do them. She is overcome with the beauty of Girton and its wonderful grounds. Mrs Ellis produced a wonderful meal in spite of rations. Mr and Ellis and I had our usual argument. Then he went off far-watching. Saturday took a turn in Kensington Gardens to see the daffodils and find out if the palace was open. It wasn't, but the daffs were in full bloom. I do enjoy the Mrs Buggins broadcast on the kitchen front. First-class fun. Veer may have been having fun in Notting Hill Gate, but Regimental Sergeant Major Jack Ward was having no fun at all. Born in 1901 as John Ward, Jack grew up in a different part of London, Lambeth. His sign-up papers tell us he joined the army in October 1920, at just 19 years of age, but we join him now at the ripe old age of 42. 
We're in North Africa, where he's serving with the 56th Heavy Regiment as part of the Royal Artillery. It's been a steep learning curve, even for an old hand like Jack, because although he joined up 23 years earlier, he's still new to frontline combat. In February 1943, Rommel launched a major counterattack, forcing the Americans of two corps back through the Kasserine Pass. The Allies then counterattacked at the end of the month, but sustained heavy casualties, and this led to a major rethink of approach, the introduction of battle schools for on-the-spot training and a reorganisation of the ground forces. Yet Rommel's Kasserine counterattack had overreached, as his attack so often did, and ill and exhausted at the beginning of March, he had left North Africa for the last time. Now, at the beginning of April 1943, the Axis forces in Tunisia, the Germans and Italians, are falling back, with the British 8th Army pushing up from southern Tunisia and 1st Army, including the Americans, closing in from the west. However, on the road to Tunis, the Axis troops once again put up an unexpectedly strong defence at Mejez el Bab. Jack knows this only too well. As we join him just outside Sukal Alba, he's not long recovered from taking a couple of bullets to his left arm. He's the RSM, the Regimental Sergeant Major, so it was his responsibility to take a patrol out when a small number of German soldiers seemed intent on doing great damage to a battery wagon. Jack has returned to his unit, and the battle for North Africa, and life in general, goes on. 3rd of April. Just had a bath in a petrol tin. Today being Saturday. Two jerry planes just went overhead, only about 50 feet up. Good shot. Got one. Came down about a mile away. Received airgraphs from Mum and Michael. And airmail letters from Mr Blair. Mum's birthday today. <laughs> Many happy returns of the day. April 4th. A grand day. Bit of a cold wind up this morning. Jerry dive-bombed. About 20 planes in all. April 5th. Canadian sergeant gave us a lecture on jerry mines this morning. All booby-trapped. What a surprise. He was stationed at Eastbourne. Gave him Poppy's address. When he goes back in about two weeks' time. April 6th. A big battle has started. We're trying to take the high ground to the southwest and west of Medjez. Commenced with heavy artillery fire at 0330 hours and we are in the show. Received news that Jerry was in Medjez, but turned out to be one of our patrols returning. News also received tonight that we have taken first objective. RAF had orders to ground all Jerry planes in the afternoon of the 5th of April and did so. But there was a new flight of Jerry's over today. Our RHQ lads fired at one of them with Brens and rifles and it went off with smoke coming out of it. 17 battery got one down with Bren fire. The battle's still on. April 7th. Still advancing. Can see from hill by RHQ. Our shells are dropping on Jerry land. We hear that the 8th Army has joined up with the Yanks. So that's Jerry prisoners in the cage. April 8th. Still going strong, and the lads are firing at Jerry Plains as I write. Sandstorm on, though. Whew, everything's covered. The insects are giving us trouble, too. Give me strength. 
We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Also out in the desert and somewhat less stressed by the insects is H. A. Wilson, Harry to us, an Irishman by birth who joined the Royal Engineers in 1940. He's in his late twenties now. The army wasn't his first choice. By his own admission, Harry's ignorance of His Majesty's forces was profound. He knew nothing of the practical waging of war and had, as he put it, a simple notion that every soldier was given a gun and sent against the enemy in one way or another with instructions to kill as many of them as possible. But then, of course, there were also vehicles to be driven and repaired, bridges built, maps drawn and accounts kept. Harry signed on as a clerk and applied to join the well-boring sections. He knew nothing about wells. He knew next to nothing about managing a payroll either, or very little about life, really. Still, Supper H.A. Wilson, 188-6939, was quick to learn and was eventually assigned to number one and number five well-boring sections. These sections were formed with the Corps of Royal Engineers to bore wells, lay pipelines and pump water into reservoirs, water supplies that were absolutely and utterly essential in North Africa and the Middle East. We join Harry now, just as he's moved to Ailey, about 10 miles from Beirut, Clarking for the last two years has made a man of him, and he's ready for bigger things. In fact, Harry has applied for specialist training. He wants to be a cipher clerk. 
Friday 2nd. Last week, the OC said I'd been selected to attend the cipher course. I asked him if he had any idea what cipher work was like, and he said he hadn't, but he thought one would have to be smart to do it. By the way, he said this, I gathered he didn't think much of my chances, but here I am now, at 9th Army headquarters, and the training's about to get started. We were handed files containing papers and books full of figures and vocabularies. It was all stamped like most secret. The sight of these things aroused my curiosity greatly. The sergeant cleared his throat. Now before I start, he said, I have to warn you this work is secret and you won't be able to take notes. You can't take your work out with you either. Even the paper you write on will be put in this tin and returned to the cipher office at the end of the class each day. You'll find it hard to remember at first. I must also ask you not to talk about it outside, not even amongst yourselves. Somebody may overhear you. I was thrilled. Responsibility was being thrust upon me, not for the first time in my life. Real responsibility, and I felt that at last. I was about to do something worthwhile in the war. We signed copies of the Official Secrets Act and gave the sergeant our particulars, then had our first lesson. Captain Hoyle, staff officer in charge of the 9th Army Cypher Course, a jolly, bustling man with a big, fat, red face. I was doing well, I was sure of it. Not only would I pass the course, I told myself, but I would come out first. I was just congratulating myself on a lead over the others when the instructor remarked, Now don't run away with the idea that speed is essential. It isn't. Accuracy counts far more. You all make mistakes, everybody does on this job, and I prefer you to make your mistakes now than later on. He described how a student on the last course who'd done nothing wrong on the first day forgot most of what he'd learned by the last. He failed. Start off shaky, end up sure, said the instructor. The speech put a halt to my gallop and had me worrying but there was more to worry about than that. Sunday 4th. Worked long and hard to reduce the pile of typing. Weather warmish, the flush of green on the brown earth has spread and deepened and several kinds of flowers have sprung up in its mist, many of them frail and sapless, as if the hard struggle for existence had been won over great sacrifice. There are hundreds of larks soaring about, but very few other birds. On the ground increasing numbers of grey lizards scamper from stone to stone. The second party of number six boring section arrived from Cairo. Major Stowe, I am told, is ignoring the CE's intervention and is going straight ahead with the plans. Ha, huh, he would. Monday 6th. Cold with north wind, the men from Egypt shivered in great coats and jerkins. The OC Burslem and Lieutenant Spens went off to 9th Army to find out about the departure of number one boring section. Return none the wiser. Evening, work late in the office, clearing up before my departure for Alle tomorrow. The OC came in, just had a phone message. We're moving after all. Go back to training with Cypher and then get off to brigade or maybe an independent regiment. He sounded eager to get away. Wednesday 7th. Well, I made it. Number one boring section moved. And I'm back at Alley at the end of a strenuous day writing this before I turn in. I have a damnable cold coming on. I'm feeling muzzy. No snow here, but the weather is damp and chilly. I saw Sergeant Mills and he told me only three students have so far arrived. Five more are due in from Haifa. Thursday 8th. Pfft, full class this morning, seven and all, and in deciphering the message, I sent a ship off to America instead of off in the AM. Your first mistake, gloating Mills, and a serious one. Why should a ship be going to America from Beirut? Desperately, I tried to argue a case for myself. Well, I suppose ships do go to America occasionally from Beirut. In war time, smiled Mills. Come on, lad, think. And he tapped his finger against his forehead. I didn't bother to tell him my forehead was feeling a bit blue at the moment. Took three aspirins, went early to bed. 
Friday night, felt better, but still far from my previous working form. But when I was here before, everything seemed auspicious. Even the weather smiled on me. Now, however, Ali is a damp, drear village, drenched with mountain rain, and my grey matter is under a cloud. Instead of coming out on top of the class, I'm now wondering if I shall pass at all. Bit of a surprise today from Captain Hoyle, quite taken aback I was. He explained, we don't like signals and signals don't like us and we keep as far away from them as possible. Not what I expected to hear from an officer. Still, he did go on to explain how cipher personnel were obtained. There was a large cipher school in Cairo and after training there, successful students were sent to what was called the cipher pool to await posting to vacancies. GHQ was divided into two branches. G branch dealt with military operations while Q branch was administrative. There were others, but those were the two main ones. Radiating from GHQ were different armies, the 8th, the 9th and the 10th armies. Like GHQ, these armies had their G and their Q branches. So too had the headquarters of the army corps, and the divisions and brigades into which the armies themselves were divided. Then we had two army corps to an army, two or three divisions to a corps, and three brigades to a division. The brigades comprised three battalions each, the battalions of three companies, and so on, down to platoons and sections. The pool at GHQ supplied cipher personnel to the armies, who passed them on down to the corps, division, and brigades. The flow of personnel was a circular one. As casualties occurred, new men were picked from the regiments and posted to the pool, which was always kept full. At present, though, it wasn't large enough to supply all the cipher operators needed by rapidly expanding army. So instead of going to the general pool, we would, if successful, be posted straight to the army or corps headquarters. Hoyle was warming up for a good talk when he was called away. He was always being called away. For the rest of the day, I worked steadily and made no more mistakes. Mills made me more uncomfortable, though, when he mentioned that a certain cipher operator at brigade headquarters had just enciphered 2,000 rounds of urgently required ammunition instead of 20,000 rounds. He was court-martialed prison for two years. Serious stuff, Cypher. Harry's been accepted to train as a Cypher clerk, but he signed on as a purely administrative role, a payroll clerk. We often overlook the importance of men behind the scenes, behind the lines. Another man whose role involved a lot of typing, coordination and generally getting the man to where he should be was Chester B. Hansen, or Chet as he was known. Chet Hansen was born in 1917. He's 26 when we join him as an aide to General Omar Bradley out in North Africa. He's just been promoted to captain. He was drafted three years earlier, and prior to that, he'd been working in public relations. Communication. You've got to have good communications in an army. Hansen kept a detailed personal diary throughout the war, discussing and reporting on Bradley's activities. He saw everything, and in fact, when Bradley became Army Chief of Staff in 1948, Chet Hansen went on with him to the Pentagon in a role as unofficial public relations counsel. And later, he ghost-wrote Bradley's memoir, A Soldier's Story, using many of his own diary notes as a crib sheet. Bradley considered Hansen to be more than an aide. He was an associate and friend who provided devoted and invaluable assistance. We join both men now in North Africa as they're moving up to two core headquarters. April 1st. So, to my diary. We were in North Africa. At the time, we were visiting Pinky Ward, that's Major General Orlando Ward, in his headquarters at the 1st Armored Division. We parked up in an olive grove where Pinky had bivouacked. 
plenty of Messerschmitts during the night, but they didn't interrupt us. Younger 88 or 87 attacked first thing in the morning, though, and we all opened fire, including Bradley. He got off six shots on his rifle. No one bothered to go into the slit trenches. Pinky got hit that evening, in the eye, when he led his attack of the 60th Infantry, which had been assigned to him from 9th Division. He led that attack, at the direct order of General Patton. General Bradley tells me that he was in the tent when Ward got the orders. Patton at that time was pretty much fed up with what he believed to be the over-conservative attitude of Ward. He ordered him to take his objective immediately before McNassie there, told him to get off the front and lead the troops up himself. General Bradley believes he said that if he didn't get them out, he need not come back. But he's not certain of it. Afterwards, Ward's aide reckoned the general was trying to get shot, the way he went up that hill. I remember watching the battle with a newspaper man. It was a terrifying sight. Brad was leaving that same morning, though, doing at two corps headquarters. He went back in a cub airplane. Lou and I returned by jeep. A four-hour trip. I remember we got a shower and wrote letters. I had 19 to get off that day. General Bradley also called in on the 1st Division to ask the troops how well they liked their equipment. He was talking to the driver of a half-track to ask him whether the German heavy-caliber machine-gun bullets would pass through the half-tracks. The driver, a grim, tactless little tanker with his crush helmet, said, No, sir, they only come in on one side and rattle around a bit. Patton was already a character in the Corps. One day on the telephone, he was interrupted by a chaplain. God damn it, get off the wire, he growled. When he learned it was a chaplain who'd interrupted, he simply said, I don't care, goddammit. Get off the damn wire, I'm using it. You can speak too soon in a war like this, if I remember correctly. The chaplain came to lunch, and Patton had to make a full and proper gentleman's apology. Anyway, we're here. It's April, and we're off to see the danger in the Regal Division. That's the 1st Division and the 9th Division. They both have command posts almost adjacent to one another. Beautiful they are in a date palm grove that looks like the grounds at a Florida resort. Pitted throughout with slit trenches, mind, and I remember Terry Allen's tent was put about five feet down into the ground. Frequent air attacks, frequent alerts. It's necessary at the moment for us to maintain a great deal of surveillance while riding in our cars. We always ride with one man facing the rear, scanning the sky for aircraft. The day before yesterday, 11 Stukas and Messerschmitts bombed us. They passed straight overhead as we were making our way uphill, along the Gumtree Road. Two M.E.s came buzzing overhead about a hundred feet from the crest of the hill. It was the best opportunity General Bradley ever had to shoot a German plane. But when he shouted at us to get his gun, we realized it had been left in his jeep, back at the command post. So he never got a shot off. Afterwards, he said next time a German plane came in range, he'd fire us instead if we didn't have the guns with us. You know, I think he wasn't joking. Finally, this week, we have two letters, two connected writers, and a simple cross-continent conversation that reminds us it was almost as important to get a letter as it was to receive the information in it. This correspondence has survived for over 80 years. Air graphs were an ingenious way to reduce the resources for keeping lines of communication open to servicemen overseas. Messages were written onto a special form, which was then given an identification number and photographed on microfilm. 
That microfilm, one small canister holding hundreds of love letters, updates and personal notes, weighed in at about 50 ounces. This was far less than the equivalent number of normal correspondence. It was flown to its destination, developed back into a full-size print and then posted to the recipient, either through the normal Royal Mail or via the in-theatre services equivalent. You do need a magnifying glass to read it. But, as Mother reminds us here, air graphs were quick and easy, and each one held just about enough of the daily news. 6th of April. Dear David, Thanks for air graph number two. I think you were under the impression that I am sending a letter each week, but I have only sent two letters, the last being dated 6th of March. You should have that by the time you receive this. I think I shall stick to air graphs too, as it's quicker and it's easier. I have not so much news as you. Just about enough, really. Of course, if I have enclosures, then I shall send a letter. Tom called in on Sunday evening to inquire about you. He's going to Carnoustie for a fortnight and thought it was just as well to have his holidays early. David Butchard has landed a good job at last. He is going round the various big cities in England with the Wings for Victory campaign, savings and the like. I'm sure that will suit David. Fame at last. Our week is going to be in May so we will stick a few stamps on a book to be dropped over Germany. I think that's how it works. I'm afraid David hasn't been so lucky since he moved. Instead of being a DI, he's just been doing odd jobs and is back in a hut again. He's in the city, where you were before you left. I am glad you are making the most of your weekends and expect you will have quite a few friends by this time. I'm also looking forward to your first letter to get all the details. How did you enjoy your first night flight? I bet it gave you quite a thrill. Don't forget to keep that parachute handy. I think I should prefer flying in daylight. June received the Christmas parcel from New Zealand last week. It had been on quite a journey. Six months. Luckily, the contents consisted of tins, except for a packet of cheese, and that had gone bad. It was kind of her, all the same. All the folks are well, and we are glad everything is OK with you. Last thought, have you heard anything about Uncle Willie? I've had no word since January. Must go now. Wishing you all the luck. Love from Ma. Ma was writing to Flight Officer David Nairn Blythe, a young Scot who joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve in 1939. To begin with, the Volunteer Reserve was made up of standbys, civilians who'd had experience in flying schools. However, owing to the high demand for aircrew, it quickly became the main route into the RAF and attracted a fine variety of young men. The objective was to create a competent air reserve and by the time war broke out, the RAF VR comprised 6,646 pilots, 1,625 observers and 1,946 wireless operators. The trouble was, all of those men needed training, as did enough ground crews. 
The solution was the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, which allowed cadets from all across the Duke territories, Dominion's UK and Empire, to train in Canada, Australia, Bermuda, New Zealand, South Africa, Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and the United States. Places where the weather was mostly good, there was plenty of space, and crucially, no enemy to interfere. There were 231 schools in all. Recruits began their careers at a manning depot, where they learned to bathe, shave, shine their boots and act like fully-fledged airmen. A standard aptitude test followed weeks of classroom lessons, bringing everyone up to speed, and after a few weeks, a committee decided if the recruit could become aircrew or ground crew. David Nairn Blythe was chosen as a navigator and sent for specialist training at Port Albert in Ontario. He's just 21 years old. Airgraphs reached him regularly for a while. We don't have them all, but we do have very many. 1563495 Blythe was a diligent chap, and like many good sons in the Second World War, he wrote to his mother regularly, even if there was little to say. 7th April. Dear Ma, I was delighted to receive your airgraphs dated 5th and 12th March. I'm glad Dad liked the birthday card too. I thought it was quite a good idea, even though I say it myself. And I'll let you into a little secret. The picture was not printed. It was traced and inked over with my own fair hands. I went out again this week. Had a smashing time as usual. Afraid I can't express in words what I think of the super-duper bands that broadcast from the USA, though. They really are just something else. As it happens, I've just written to Aunt Joan to say that Frank and I would like to visit her on the 17th of this month. We'll arrive at 8am on the Saturday, and we'll have to leave again at 11am on the Sunday. But while the stay will be short... I know she and Uncle Willie will be delighted to see us. We're looking forward to it. Sorry, Ma, but I've lost count of the airgraphs. You'll just have to go by the dates. Love to all, David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>